please pray with me. Father God, thank you that in this moment, in this time, as Sean sang, we are sealed from your courts above. Lord, I, as I was listening to that calling passage again, I was reminded about how you looked at your disciples and you said, but who do you say I am? The answer given was, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. If that was only ever the truth that we knew in our lives, if the only ever thing that we trusted, and that's enough. In light of our current events, in our current culture, in our current emotional state, you still chose us before all of that happened. And you're going to hang on to us after all of it's passed. Father God, in this moment right now, I pray that like the soldiers of old that would light a tower as a beacon for other towers to be lit, that we would stand in the valley and look up and see the towers lighting all around us. And that your people, your people rise up as one and say, we believe. We believe. And because we believe, we trust. And because we trust, we then love love in a way that we've never experienced in our own lives before for those people that need to see it more than ever probably most of us ourselves Lord Jesus we love you in your precious name we pray amen please stay standing for the reading of God's word by my son Luke Dawkins first First Thessalonians 2, 1-20. For you yourselves know, brethren, that our coming to you was not in vain. But after we had already suffered and been mistreated in Philippi, as you know, we had the boldness in our God to speak to you the gospel of God amid much opposition. For our exhortation does not come from error or impurity or by way of deceit, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not as pleasing men, but God but God who examines our hearts. For we never came with flattering speech, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed, God is witness, nor did we seek glory from men, either from you or from others, even though as apostles of Christ, you might have asserted our authority. But we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children, having so fond an affection for you, for we, we were well pleased to impart to you not only the gospel of God, but also our own lives, because you had, had become very dear to us. For you recall, brethren, our labor, labor and hardship, how working night and day, so as not to be a burden to any of you, we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witness, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blamelessly we have behaved toward you believers, just as you know how we are exhorting and encouraging and employing each one of you as a father would his own children, so that you would walk in a manner worthy of, the, of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. For this reason... We also constantly thank God that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus, that in Judea, for you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of our own countrymen, even as they did from the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out. They are not pleasing to God, but hostile to all men, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might may be saved with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins but wrath has come upon them to the utmost but we brethren having been taken away from you for a short while in person not in spirit were all the more eager with great desire to see your face for we wanted to come to you i paul more than once and yet satan hindered us for who is our hope or joy or crown of exaltation is it not even you in the presence of our lord jesus at his coming for you are glory and joy Amen. Thank you. Thank you, Luke. Please be seated. If you need a Bible today, please raise your hand. If you don't have a Bible available, you're going to need one. We're going to be in the Bible today. So if you need one, there are people in the back that can get you a Bible. Please raise your hand. Grace and peace to you. Grace and peace to you. Last night we saw in our revival prayer time, this wonderful transition of grace and peace being lived out among people. And there were many hearts, including my own, that were not 
ready for that time. And by the time I left, I was a different creature than when I began. And I want to highlight some things to you first before we get into our passage. What Luke read, we're going to be going through all those verses today. Our title is A Disciple is a Proud Parent, which is another reason why I chose my son. As a proud parent, I get to watch my son read God's word, which he had put in his heart. And that's going to end up being where we, where we travel through, but I'm getting ahead of myself. In the Old Testament, in Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 3, it reads, He read from it. That's the word of God. Before the square, which in front of the water gate, from early morning until midday in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So the Sabbath time is a time that we should be building each other up for the work of the ministry that goes on throughout the week. And the the person that is up here giving God's word should be relevant and should be encouraging, but also should be just a vessel to bring out God's truth in his word to you. And so last week, something hit me as Pastor Doug was talking. He made some comments that he's like, hey, I'm I'm running behind. I know know I'm running behind. And, And I love this man. But let me tell you something. How can we be running behind when we're in the word of God? And so this is when I start thinking about, like, I'm going to start yelling, but then I realize I'm already being mic'd up, so I won't yell. But I'll tell you that how can we be behind when the spirit of the living God is taking the word of God and transforming the people of God to do his work? And so there's nothing more important on a Sabbath time that we launch from than to be with God and his people. The election isn't more important. Football games are not more important. Barbecue time is not more important. Halloween decorations are not more important. And putting your Christmas tree up is not more important. So if you get yourself in a posture where you feel like I'm racing against the clock every Sunday to get home for whatever reason, please remember that we are here in a place for a time such as this. And people, this time may not be this way forever. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but our creator does. And he promises a far greater glory than what we would see on our own. So please, every week that we come here, it is not a routine. It is a privilege. And as a young man told me this morning, you know, Jeff, when we live so much in the extraordinary, we think it's ordinary. I would encourage you that way. We have the privilege of living in the extraordinary time of being with the Word of God today. So think about that because in future generations, future pastors will stand in this pulpit and they'll be praising the faithfulness and the work of us as the example the way the Thessalonians were to Paul because of our steadfast devotional commitment to him. And that was just warm-up. So for some background review, the teaching last week, let's remember that Paul was traveling with Silas and Timothy, and ultimately in the readings through Acts 15 and 16, he ends up in Thessalonica. He stays three weeks, he preaches. We end up in Acts 17, verses 1 through 5, and then he gets kicked out. He writes a letter from Corinth after Timothy and Silas have returned from Thessalonica. This is a way to encourage him as he shepherds the church from that city. That's in Acts 18. So our series is The Ready Disciple. And we spend, we're going to spend five weeks in 1 Thessalonians, and this is week two. And this is the first of two letters he wrote about 50 AD and his second missionary journey. And Paul is going to report on the abundance of joy from that report that Timothy gave him when he returned. So he knew that there were some problems going on, but remember that he needed the encouragement of the sufferings that were were either known to him or not, but there was so necessary that Paul got the encouragement at that time about the church that he spent three weeks building into. And I want to connect that for you just briefly to our D groups. So we have a D group structure that's going on. Our whole church in unity is reading the same stuff through the Gospel of Matthew, and Jonah and 1 Thessalonians are portraits of what it looks like to live in the gospel truth of Matthew, right? So our D groups work together to encourage us. We connect so we can be, so that we can engage. And if you're not connected regularly in a D group, then I would ask why? The opportunities are there. The shepherds are leading and God's grace is transforming. And there's story after story about discipling 
and ministry opportunities. In fact, there is a young gal that came and visited and saw the genuineness of what happened here, here among us, and brought that home to her family who then walked her into a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. And that's truth. That's real. Staying where you are because it's comfortable. I said this last night when I said, I don't want to come to revival. I'm tired. But I got up in front of people and I said, staying in the darkness only lets you see darkness. You want to see light? Get with people of God and see that light and watch what happens, how bright that light is. You're not going to mature on your own. You're not going to conquer sin on your own no matter how good you think you are. You're not going to solve your problems or beat sin on your own. You're not. You're not. If you could, you would have. But you didn't because Jesus Christ had to because God loves us enough to do that. We played a video a couple times here. It's by Pastor Judah Smith. It was about, what about Barabbas? Remember that? Pastor Doug said it at one point, and I'm going to say it again. It's still Jesus. It'll always be Jesus. It'll never stop being the power of Jesus, ever. Paul knew this. He lived his life on that truth. That's what he preaches in this letter. He pours his life out to others so that he points to Jesus, not to himself. Discipleship in your life through Jesus Christ is the key. So that's just all background. Back to our letter. So if you're in 1 Thessalonians, we're going to walk through verse 1 all the way through verse 20. But I want to show you something interesting. As, as I was studying, preparing for this message, I learned something very interesting. All of chapter 2 is a breakout of verse 9 in chapter 1. It's called an elapsis. That's the literary term. Actually, it's just a flashback. That's what we call it, flashback. Paul's going to explain in chapter 2 how his pastor's heart overflows in that verse from 1-9. So I'm going to read that for you. So here's 9 and 10 in chapter 1 in 1 Thessalonians. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. That's Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. Paul is going to use that. He's going to now break out. Here's exactly why I'm so excited, and here's why I'm so encouraged, and then let me encourage you. And he transitions that through chapter 3 as a continuation of that present encouragement directly following verse 10. So why take so much time to build that out? Why would we want to do that? Well, that's what we're going to cover today. Today's message is called, A Disciple is a Proud Parent. And today's question that the letter asks of you is how does the gospel disciple to you and through you? How does the gospel disciple to you and through you? We're going to walk through three different parts of this message, and our path is how is the gospel delivered through the first 12 verses? How is the gospel received, verses 13 through 16? And lastly, how is the gospel celebrated to the end of the chapter in verse 20? So let's jump in, how the gospel is delivered. In verses 1 through 6, Paul reminds the readers and clarifies his motives. Because we know that Paul hadn't come in those three weeks just to give speeches. He came on his mission, his purpose, his focus was to bring Jesus Christ to them. His changes that he saw in the believers in Thessalonica, their lives testified of the value and success of his visit. And so when you look at that opening in verse 1, that's what he's highlighting. And he moves into verse 2. Him and his companions, Silas and Timothy, they, they weren't on a vacation trip. We've heard other parts of Scripture where it says, we've given you everything, even at times, our own lives. And we came close to dying on different trips. And all of that was worth it, so we'd have the comfort, it says in Corinthians, to comfort others. And he's telling them, they'd come to Thessalonica after having suffered, been insulted, beaten, imprisoned for preaching the gospel at Philippi in Acts 16. And even though the mission cost them, God gave them. God gave them the boldness to stand in front of people in the synagogue and in front of others and preach the message of salvation through Jesus. And that's the same message that bought them jail time and beatings in Philippi. And it's the same message that plays over and over in our lives. Paul calls on the readers to remember 
that the actions that they're taking, they define the sincerity of the message. His, his actions are demonstrated in his love for Jesus Christ and his love for the people in Thessalonica, as it was in the churches he planted. Remember, he said, he listed a litany of things he suffered, but he ends in a different letter by saying, above all those things, I carry the weight of the churches. Remember? So that's what we're looking at. And so when Paul is opening up, he's talking to the church and saying that in contrast to what people may be saying to you, you turn, remember that chapter one, you turn from idols to God. And let me highlight what a wonder that is and how extraordinary your ordinary life may seem now. In verse four, he and his companions spoke to please God, not men. They never did anything. Paul himself never did anything to bring out or to highlight himself. He never did. He did everything to show Jesus Christ. And then, if you remember, when people would, would call upon him to say, do these things for me, Paul, he would say, no, 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 it's not me, it's Jesus Christ. In fact, in other times, he says, I'm glad I didn't baptize all of you because it would take you into my world. But it's not about me. It's about Jesus Christ. And can it be about Jesus Christ for us? And Paul's encouragement to the church is our encouragement today. It can always be about Jesus. It can. And we're seeing it play out. So Paul continues. He said, God wouldn't have blessed their trip if their motivation hadn't been right. He saw the people around them claiming false gods. Paul saw what it was like for other people to claim their own righteousness or to put their hope in things that are not real and don't last. And God then, in true form, did not bless that. The entire Bible points to the sovereignty of God through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. And as Pastor Doug said in the opening passage, we keep in mind the battle that the, the weapon we have is the cross of Christ. That's the weapon we have. And even a splinter from that cross is powerful enough to beat back the darkness. So Paul's reminding them of that. That God blesses their time here because their motives are right in verse 4. And the responsibility was most significant to Paul because he views himself as under God's constant scrutiny. Remember, this is the same Paul who writes elsewhere in Scripture, I am the chief of all sinners. This is the same Paul who was well known in the Christian church for finding, hunting, beating, and killing Christians. This is the same Paul that Jesus stood up on the road to Damascus and said, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I am Jesus. And I wonder how many times we can just stop for a second in our own lives and say, who are you? And he says, I am Jesus. And then we get back on our course. So Paul is really bringing it to him. He's saying that he wouldn't serve with wrong motives and they shouldn't either and bless them, encouragement to them for what they're doing. He continued through verse five and six talking that their preaching wasn't aimed at making a favorable transition in the culture. It was not. It was not designed to make the people in Thessalonica, which by the way, was the capital of Macedonia. That Pastor Doug went through the history of this before last week, remember? Thessalonica is a port town, a town that ships came in and a center of trade. It was hugely favorable. And it was, like I said, the capital of Macedonia, a lot of influence was there. Paul's goal was not to change primarily the culture, but it was to show Jesus. And in showing Jesus, a culture changes. If you don't think that's true, 12 people turned this world on its ear. 12 the missionaries weren't seeking the praise of any man, but the praise of God. And because it was in Thessalonica, they were familiar. The people in Thessalonica were familiar with traveling people that would come and say, let me tell you the new thing. Let me explain to you the new thing. Let me tell you about this new way of living. Let me tell you about this new God to worship. Let me tell you, let me tell you, let me tell you. And so Paul comes in, right, with this message. And people are going, okay, great. So this week we have this new thing. Let's hear this guy. They went place to place, but Paul points out they had nothing in common with those men. For those preachers, those people that had this agenda, they always brought it back to themselves. 
so that if you do what I say, blah, blah, blah. Paul says, no, no, no. If you do what God in heaven says through Jesus Christ, his son, then you will see eternal life. That messed people up. They didn't know what to do with that because they're so used to saying, yeah, 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 to the people that come in. So they get the trinkets or they get the parties, which happened, that followed all these public speakers around. Paul's, I don't want any of that. I don't want any of that. I'm not here to gain your favor. In fact, in verse 5, Paul detests flattery so much that he even equates it to sin. He, he said, David, King David, he's telling him he even hated sin. In Psalm 12 too, David says, they speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart do they speak. Paul is referencing David and connecting the fact that these flatterers have this hard heart, this deceptive speech. Paul wants nothing to do with that. Warren Wiersbe wrote, a flatterer is a person who manipulates rather than communicates. A flatterer can use either truth or lies to achieve his unholy purpose, which is to control your decisions for his own profit. Think about that. What are we seeing in our culture? We're seeing men and women evaluate their own righteousness in their own standard and saying, look at me. And then if you don't really want to believe what I say, let me tell you how wonderful you are for that unholy purpose so that I can control your opinions. But we know the truth. People, we, we know the truth. And Paul's writing to the, the church here and saying, some people flatter themselves, certainly. Psalm 36 says, for he flatters himself in his own eyes. And some people try to flatter God to make themselves look better in God's eyes. And some Christians even try to win friends and influence people by appealing to their egos and telling someone what they want to hear. But a true ministry, a true disciple, a true follower is willing to look into the life of someone else and say, no, no, not only do you not have what it takes because of Jesus Christ, but I don't either, but I know the way and walk with me and let's get there. That's what a ministry for Jesus Christ does. And that's what Paul's telling him. So in those first six, he's just highlighting his authority and his purpose for coming to him in Thessalonica. In verse 7 and 9, Paul shifts his emphasis somewhat from what he was doing to what their response should be. So Paul and his companions, they, they cared deeply for the people with whom they interacted. The converts, the people that came to Jesus through that work, he's starting to highlight as a nursing mother gently cares for the little children. And that illustration provides a great example for new believers who are responsible and in under the care of more mature believers. And listen, it, it, it doesn't matter what title is in front of your name. This man here, he would stand up and tell you, it doesn't matter that it's pastor. I would stand here and say, it doesn't matter if it's elder. It does not matter if it's deacon. It doesn't matter at all. It doesn't matter the letters behind your name. It doesn't qualify you any more than the day that you were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Amen? We are no more qualified because you have knowledge just because of knowledge's sake. You, I look back and I see the shoebox. I see the, the young boy. You should look back and see this young boy smiling on that, on that banner. He's smiling with the love of Christ. And the love of Christ drives through culture. It drives through knowledge. And it is is able to take down the kingdoms of the lofty. That's what Paul's saying. Genuine love pours into people when the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. So think about this. If a nursing mother, like Paul's saying, if a nursing mother doesn't properly feed herself, then what comes out of her, that life, can't possibly feed a new baby. And so Paul recognizes the soapbox that, that I'm going to jump on now. If we are not feeding ourselves with the Word of God every single day, every single day, if we're not in the Word of God, if we're not thinking about what God's doing in our lives, if we're not saturating ourselves, as, as Carrie said last night, if we're not murmuring and meditating on the Word of God, if you're not feeding yourself that way, how then can you feed those under your care? I, I would ask. It's like those of us that have kids, right? That they say, What do you want for breakfast? I look around, some people are smiling. You probably know where I'm going with this. Some, my, my kids, they're, they're a little more clever now. They don't just say, I want sugar and snacks 
and things that are not healthy for me. But that's essentially what they're asking. And so if I were to model that all day long, or my wife would model our eating patterns all day long that way, then they would do what we do. And they would end up sick, rotted teeth, and just look bad, right? But we don't want to sit, watch why I tie this in, right? We don't want to sit as Christians with rotted teeth. I know it doesn't translate. But as a nursing mother, what Paul is saying, going back to the text, what Paul is saying is what he brings in and what his companions have brought in is now being shined and being fed into the church. And that's important because, remember, this is a breakout of that first section in chapter 1. And he's saying you overcame these idols and you went to God because of the things you saw. And amen. Keep going. Matthew eleven twenty nine. Jesus describes himself in this way. Gentle and lowly. Gentle and lowly. Paul patterns his life on Jesus this way. And the book of Acts shows Paul moving from Thessalonica to Athens to Corinth. He even says in the letter in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, follow me as I follow Christ. So while in Corinth, Paul writes this letter to them to remind them of that. And you have to think, what would the Thessalonians view this as? He was here. He built into us. He fed us his encouragement, his prayer. And now he's encouraging us again by the way we're living our lives. Isn't that wonderful? Because think of this. What, what Brian did, and, and Brian Tootin would have no idea that this was on here, but what he did by getting everyone up, go pray for someone you haven't prayed for, and when someone prays for you, doesn't that change how you feel about yourself? When someone prays for you, encourages you, doesn't that give you the opportunity to say, wow, these are either areas I can really improve on, or these are things that I can bring out and replicate again, and you get excited and so the Thessalonians are seeing this going, okay, Paul, we get it. We're excited. Moving into verse 8, Paul's talking about this, that message of eternal life. He's saying, remember, like Luke read, that they're giving them the gospel of God, but not even that. They're giving them their, their own souls. The, the deepest part that Paul and his companions, Silas and Timothy, could possibly give them, the deepest part, Paul gives to them and says, because of this, Christ is shown to be glorified. And I would encourage you, so those in the room that are married, think of this. Are there areas in your marriage that you have not yet given to your spouse? Are there things, pain in your heart, joy, celebration, hopes, dreams, wishes that you haven't given to your loved ones? What are you hanging on? Like, why would you do that? I had my parents over yesterday. It's the first time I've seen them in nine months because they refused to leave their house because they were afraid they were going to get a virus and die. And I told my mom and dad things that I've never told them before. Because if today was a day that I never saw them again, I wanted them to know that the love of Christ from their son was real. So Paul says, the depth of my heart is telling you that my life even is given to show you the sincerity of the message of the gospel. And he continues by saying, we didn't just come over here and have fanfare and have lights and a party. We toiled. We, you got converted by this hardship that we worked day and night on your behalf. So Paul, remember, he was a tent maker and he would work so that no one could give him anything. He wouldn't have to say, wait, wait, I owe you this because you gave me money, right? I did this, and so you now do this. And the fact that he makes this very clear to the Thessalonians should also remind us that if he's working day and night, the man is nonstop ministry. He's doing what he can to support himself and his companions, but he's also then taking the rest of the time and pouring it right into the Thessalonians. He's not looking for his couch. He's not looking for his PlayStation. He's not looking for quiet time. He's all about the mission and all about people. People are the mission. Both they, Paul says, and God are witnesses to the truthfulness of Paul's claims. And so, much like the table talk question from last week, if someone asks other people about your life outside your family to describe what kind of person you are, what would they say? So, 
here's my thought. You're either mission-minded for the kingdom or your, your mission stalled at the starting gate. I mean, you're either committed to seeing Jesus shine in others or you're just content to see Jesus shine in yourself. And you may think that's harsh. And I'd say, take it up with Christ. Because Jesus Christ said, foxes and birds are no place to lay their head, neither does the Son of Man. You follow me, then you give up everything. Because where I'm going is over there. And then when the crowds came upon him and rushed him, he said, all right, let's go to the next town, for that is the purpose for which I have come. That's Jesus. Paul redid his calendar. He went to his Google schedule. He went to Facebook. He went to everything and canceled everything out so that he could be solely on mission for Christ. And let me tell you something. When he hears the report from Timothy, he is fired up. Let me tell you something else. When he writes this letter, it's with intensity. And I can almost see him writing this whole letter in one breath, being so excited that he doesn't really know what else to say. He's just like, I'm, I'm, I love you, and Jesus Christ is on his throne. And we should do the things that he taught us that I now teach you. So having likened the conduct in verse 11 of those missionaries, he, he explains them as a loving mother. He also compares them to a father. So fathers in the room can listen to this. The implication is that after they've been nursed and fed and through that time now trained, they're also instructed as a responsible father instructs his children. And so the actual Greek word is techna, and that, that Greek word means immature child, requiring training and discipline. And most times, as we all would agree, through hardship, those things are learned best, right? So Paul is going to draw the parallel of a worldly father versus heavenly father. A father exhorts his kids to do better. The father exhorts us to see him better. A father encourages his kid through hard times. The father encourages closeness with him through hard times. That's what Paul's saying. A father implores his kids when they're off path, and the father implores his kids to trust and love and follow him on the path. Right? So there's the, the worldly and heavenly relationship right there, and Paul's showing them. Because that training then requires discipline. It also requires some positive encouragement. Paul continues saying that such a combination of appeals and encouragement and discipleship, it proved effective because look at you now is what he's saying. Look at you now. Take a minute and look ahead. Yes, every car has a rear view mirror, but the rear view mirror is a lot smaller than the windshield, people, Right? You spend all your life looking in the rearview mirror back to what you were. You don't see what's in front of you now. Paul's saying, take a minute. Let me encourage you. The appeal to lead lives worthy for God is the highest appeal that testifies to God's grace for all who believe. He's going to apply it. Paul applies what he says into the lives of the Thessalonians. And that's his whole opening. So the first point, verses 1 through 12, he encourages them. He highlights where they've been, highlights what they should believe in and how they're doing what they should be doing. And oh, by the way, I still have responsibility for you as a nursing mother and a loving, responsible father. So it leads us to our second point. How is the gospel received? So Paul, in verse 13, gives a second reason for identifying to the Thessalonians that not only were the fruits of righteousness brought out in their converts, like what he's seen in their lives was brought out, and that was from verse 3 of chapter 1, but also the way that they not only preached, but received the word of God, it just made him smile. I was telling my son Ethan that I remembered, I was praying for Ethan earlier, and I said, I remember sitting on your bed when he was really young, and he's, and he's crying. He said, Dad, come here, come here. And he's crying. He's holding his, his jungle Bible that we got him, and he's like, Dad, Jesus loves me. And he got it. And for those of you who have ever walked into a situation with your children, he got it. He's crying on his bed. He doesn't know I was going to say this, so love you, son. But he's there, and I sat down, and I held him. We prayed, and he's like, I'm a Christian. He wasn't asking me to be a Christian as his father. He knew because he's not mine to give. He's the Lord's. Our job is to train them. And what God did in his heart is what Paul is saying. That's what he did in your heart, church. You received the word of God, and then you were changed by that word. Awesome. 
they announce that they've had that truth that was revealed. Because we talked about in the song there, the spoken word of God has the power to change. I will tell you this, though. The character of the messenger impacts the delivery of the message. Would you agree? The character of the messenger impacts the delivery of the message. We talk a lot in leadership about character and competency are the building blocks for trust. How can people trust the message when they do not see a man or woman of character who knows what they're talking about? So Paul qualified that, and he tells them, look, knowing who I am, you get to see now who you are. And the power of God's spirit, that's what caused them to have a dimming focus on their idols. The power of God's spirit then took the power and moved it into him. Paul credits everything to the spoken word of God. Not only had it affected them in the past and convicted them, but now it's changing them and allowing them to walk worthy into their future. And so that word believe, and what Paul's saying, that word believe is, is in Greeks in the present tense. It, it indicates a continuing action. So as you are continuing to believe is what Paul's saying. It doesn't mean you believe and so therefore you're done. And it doesn't require more believing. It says, as you believe, you keep on believing because the message I gave you is real. Because the power of God is real and his spirit is real inside of you. And the truth, like any good medicine, heals that sick heart. And that's what he's pointing out. The lives of people changed. It's amazing. But oftentimes we face criticism. So Paul wants to walk into that, that role for a second. And he's saying to them, look, your brothers all through Judea were persecuted as well. And I just want to point out some, some different parts of Scripture. And if you want, take a note of this Scripture, and you can go ahead and look at it later. But Hebrews 10, 32 through 36, I'm going to read this. But remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and a lasting one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what's promised. Paul reminds the Thessalonians they need to continue in their perseverance, in their walk of faith, to walk into God's promised reward. So the Thessalonians weren't alone in their suffering. He points out they had good company. In fact, Paul says, the same people that killed the Lord Jesus are the ones persecuting you. Most likely he mentions that because in light of their persecutions, they should always see Jesus Christ first. You should see the sufferings of the cross not as something to run from, but as a model to encourage. The sufferings of Christ that were done on our behalf. We say, okay, if I want to live like Christ, then I should live like Christ. This is the way to walk. Paul's highlighting again, they know that they are under attack. They know that they're fighting this real enemy. They know that there are things that they can't control. Listen to me again when I say that. They know the Thessalonians, there are things in their lives they cannot control. And it can certainly be frustrating like it is for us. Would you agree? Things in our lives that we can't control drive me crazy. I am a type A, right wing, conservative male police officer. You're a guy. Yes, which means if it's not my way, you're wrong. So God consistently, and I say that going, okay, I'm just using an example, Lord. It's not really where I'm at anymore. Because we don't like to deal with things that we can't control. We have a little box. If there was a God that we could define and control, he would not be a God worth worshiping and following. Amen? Job points that out in Job 13. He says, we're going to go through in the midst of our trials. We still see the glory of God. Paul points out to them that the, the persecutions that they're receiving not only condemn the unbelievers, but it's going to hinder the salvation of other people, and they shouldn't walk in that way. They shouldn't be discouraged to then dim their own light. People that do that, and you allow them into your life to control the things that you can't control, right? We allow other people to determine our course of action. You just simply allow them to put like extinguish the flame on that candle. I think about that like candle there and somebody coming over, 
and now they take it away and they leave. And just as soon as someone that affects our lives in a negative way impacts you, they leave, right? People like that usually don't stick around. And as soon as that flame is out, they're gone and your flame now is not lit. Paul is reminding them, the unbelievers and the people that are persecuting you, they're only here for a moment. And if they persecuted and killed Jesus Christ, what will they do to you? He's going to walk them, and I'm going to connect this to our our prior series, but he walks them to the idea that God only allows the accumulation of so much before he will allow that cup, like he talks about, to be dealt with. That cup, remember Nineveh and Jonah? And that's where I wanted to connect it. So Paul was very serious about this because he points out to them that, look, that the Roman culture was a culture of hedonism. Hedonism is a word that means just pursuing your own pleasure. And so when people say Christian hedonist, what they're saying is we're pursuing pleasure for Christ. Like the pleasure of Christ is our pursuit, right? But Paul's letting them know that in this culture right now, this is probably the highlight in that city of all the influences of Rome that are coming in. And you can't think about what, what Paul's attitude is going to be. You know that it's focused on Christ and moving forward. But for his people, he is going to go ahead and like Thessalonians, he's telling them that with all of that, maybe we should remember that Christ first, Christ first, Christ first, Christ first, and these people will be judged. And it's not up to you. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, so saith the Lord. It's not up to you to be upset and to be worried about how other people's lives are going in light of your life. It's up to us to follow hard after Christ. Paul gets excited about the fate of the persecutors because so often we look at other people and say, why can't I be like them? The message transformed those Thessalonians. They were off that soapbox. They, they, were, they were illustrating what it means to go therefore forth and follow hard after Christ and, and be disciples. Recognize that, lo, I'll be with you always. Those people got that. So through the first 16 verses, to summarize, Paul is qualifying why he's there. He's excited for them. He's saying, the things that you, you heard, I'm going to encourage you to you know, continue doing. Continue always believing. Live in that way. And stop worrying about these other people. You just don't need to. And so we're going to take a couple minutes right now for a table talk. And I want you guys to sit at your tables and talk about this question. It's going to come up on the screen. I'll read it to you. Paul highlighted to the Thessalonians that there were people that hindered the free expression of the gospel without consequence. So what are some consequences that you face in sharing the gospel with others? And how did you work through it? If it didn't go the way you wanted, how could you work through it for the future? Because I'll tell you what, in the same way we got encouraged by prayer, in the same way Paul is with the church at Thessalonica, with the same way at the table, you guys will get encouragement from these stories. So take Okay, so as we've talked through this, I've walked around, I heard some people talking about some things, and as you guys are wrapping up your conversation, you know, just because you're an adult doesn't mean you're any more qualified to recognize truth. It just means that we're better about faking our motives for how we talk. Little kids have no such problem. I want. Remember the old Paul Tripp thing? I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Adults are like, well, you know, in your best interest, we should. The packaging is different. The idea is the same. And what my brother was saying over there, you know, our expectations of how we view this question about how people should respond, it's irrelevant. Because we get personally attacked then and we get personally insulted instead of remembering that the message of Christ is the goal. And if you destroy your ability to be in relationship with people, and to walk with them, then you destroy your ability to continue bringing that message. And so like a nursing mother with gentleness, you then train like a loving father. And that's where, where I would hope you would get to with that thought. So our last point, I'm going to go pretty quickly, how the gospel celebrated, the last three verses. So Paul is about ready to talk about in chapter 3, which we'll get to next week some of his experiences, but he, he just wants to talk about in verse 17, 
It's the most revealing, really, of his feelings for these believers. He used the, the best term of endearment in addressing them. He called them brothers. And again, Jesse couldn't have known that this was going to happen. But last week, he says to me, he says, and I'm going to butcher the initial part of it, but he says, who are you? He says something like that. And if you've been around Jesse, you should know that there's like four layers he's already thought through on how this is going to be answered. I said something, and he just goes, no, nah, you're my brother. No, nah, you're my brother. And it meant something to me, and it means something to him. And it means something from Paul to say that to these people. You are my brothers. What I have, you have. What you have, I have. And I will suffer all things for you because you're my brother. He talks to them about being orphaned and, and being in a situation where no one person cared at all. And so for him to turn around and strikingly say, you're my brother, that would have meant a lot. Because look at that culture again. Remember, you can't look at stuff outside of context of Scripture. In that culture, they were just being persecuted and, and being told that they couldn't believe a certain way. I'm like, okay, well, you're going to be orphaned by the world, but you're my brother. And although he wasn't with them physically, they weren't out of sight, out of mind. They were so right there. He's even telling them that I wanted to come back to you numerous times. I tried to come back to you. Sometimes it's all he could even do was just to think, okay, well, I know I want to get back to them, but I will through all things, like it said in a prior verse, I will constantly give thanks at all times for you in my prayers. I want to see you. I'm encouraged by hearing about you. I want to encourage you now by telling you that. That even though that they face very real danger in Thessalonica, the end of their story is written by the cross of Jesus Christ, and he points it out to them. And Paul rightly doesn't look around and say, I was too old, I was too tired to walk around the world for my third rotation, right? I was too this, too that. He's like, nope, Satan hindered me. Satan hindered me. Well, that gets into a deeper question, but we're not going to have time for that. But any hindrance at all, any hindrance at all that's outside the will of God is caused by the enemy. There are no levels of that. So Paul's really letting them know two things. One, I tried to get there, but the enemy knew what a good thing that would be, so he's stopping me. And two, when you are hindered from doing God's will, don't blame it on lack of money, lack of food, lack of sleep, lack of time, lack of friendship. You're being hindered by the enemy, which means you're rising up doing God's work. Amen? When you stand up, when, you, when you're playing, ready for this one, spiritual whack-a-mole, and you stand up and somebody tries to whack you down, you better find another hole to pop up through. Because that's how you know you're on mission, right? Slide's going to come up here. John Calvin wrote, Whenever the ungodly cause us trouble, they're fighting under the banner of Satan and are his instruments for harassing us. Yeah, God allowed all that to happen. He allowed it to happen. But God's no more responsible for that than he is for any other sin that he permits creatures to commit. Right? So Paul's really focusing them and saying, you don't get the right to say, well, God caused this. Name your enemy. So nearing the end, Paul points out that the Philippian believers that he just got done being jailed with, and then you heard last week, you want to go ahead and throw me in jail? Fine, I'll convert your whole jail. And then if that wasn't enough, I'll have the jailer take me home for dinner and some Starbucks, and we'll talk to the whole family, and they'll get converted. Was there a Starbucks? There probably was. They've been around forever. There's no translation for that in sign language. Paul, Paul is going to, with this fervor, like he's getting them set up now for this close, right, in this area. He asked this rhetorical question. He said, who and what would be the greatest blessing that he could possibly receive at the judgment seat of Christ? Now, before we get there, right, you know the answer because you're reading it. Who would be the greatest blessing? What would be the greatest blessing? And again, if you were to ask a child outside of reading this letter, what would be the greatest blessing? It's like, I want uh, a million hours of video game time, or I want a brand new Mercedes for adults because we don't just change or just get more money to buy toys, right? That kind of thing. But we look at the judgment seat of Christ and go, well, what would you want in that moment? Paul's saying, what's my greatest joy? He, listen to this, Paul doesn't say, I can't wait. In this, in this letter, he doesn't say, I can't wait for my greatest joy to be Jesus Christ saying, well done, my good and faithful servant, which he believes. He says, who is my greatest joy and treasure? They were. The, 
the believers in Thessalonica were his greatest blessing at the judgment seat of Christ. He's like, I did it because they did it. They loved you, which meant I was on mission. They were his hope. They were his joy. They were his crown. They were his glory and joy. Paul says, in essence, when, when my life is over and I stay in the presence of the Lord Jesus Christ, you Thessalonians are the glory and joy that I bring because you mean that much to me. So as I invite the worship team back up, I'm going to preach to you something here. It was preached last week. It was preached some weeks before. Hopefully it'll always be preached from this pulpit. The gospel changes everything. That's what the gospel does. Pastor Doug said it. I'm going to say it again. The gospel changes everything. That's what the gospel does. And that was the premise of every single letter that Paul wrote that we have in the New Testament. You fade your gaze from the disappearing here and now. And you look towards the glory of the there and then. And if you're here now and you don't have that trust and, and you're looking for the good times that come at the end of a long day, you need to stay after and talk to me. Let me tell you about me for a second. Jesus Christ took me as I was. Here's who I was. I was a blasphemer, prideful, arrogant, violent, hurtful, greed-centered, lust-driven, alcohol-fueled bomb of emotional destruction. That's who Christ took and who his grace transformed me into after he said, son, go live your life. I'll take it. Go live your life. Because of Jesus, I'm now spirit-filled, grateful, caring, emotionally stable, servant-leading, loving, respectable, and a man who knows, knows that he has everything he needs for life and happiness as long as I keep my eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of my faith. So if you're walking with faith in Jesus Christ like I just described, and you say amen. But listen, you do not then sit around like a brand new car you just bought having people come look in it. Get your buddies in the car and go for a ride. You got new tires and a full tank of gas. Show off your new car. Show off Jesus Christ. Pray with me. Father God, your message is truth. And we can read all sorts of words in the Bible, but it boils down to what I said before, is that the gospel changes everything. So what's that, what's that truth, Lord? Father, there's someone here today that I know needs to hear that. The truth of the gospel is this, that there is a God that before time began said, wait a minute, you're mine right now, and there's a problem. You have sin. And you can't solve that problem, but I want you with me, and I love you. So I'm going to give you my son. I'm going to let my son hang on a cross and die so that you can come and be with me because I love you. Lord, for that person that needs to hear it right now, I pray that they hear this part as well, that you love us as if we were the only person ever on earth from the beginning of time that there was for you to love. That's how much you love us. That's the gospel that changes everything. Give us an opportunity, Lord, to celebrate that just by living our life as servants for you. In the name of Christ, I pray.